Well, hi everybody, welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. I'm here outside Gino's Coffee House in Fremantle with a, a very old, well, a middle-aged <laughs> friend, Steve Mickler, whom I knew well, I guess 20 years ago, but hadn't seen for ages until middle of last year. And Steve's very, consent, very kindly consented to come into the podcast and talk with us today. And the format, Steve, is very much, you know, as I said to you, it's softball and it's tell me what you're up to these days. Sure. Um, and then if we feel like it can be a little bit of a career review, as it were. So, and in a way that allows people to find some of your work if they're interested yep. in what we end up discussing. And the audience is quite international. So things like acronyms and local forms of knowledge needed an explanation that you're used to doing that as an international person yourself. But that, that's kind of the setting, if that makes sense. So you're at Curtin University here in Western Australia. Yep, um, I've been at Curtin Ball probably about 15, 16 years now. Um, we head of the School of Media, Culture and Creative Arts since mid-2008. Wow, um, that's a long term of service. It is, and, and uh, probably somewhat uniquely, amongst heads of school out there, I enjoy it. Um, My God, that, that you're not allowed... Burden, I so. recently interviewed yeah. in Colombia for the podcast a dean. And I said, so tell me how all the faculty are bastards and the students are shits. And she said, no, I love it. And I couldn't believe it. Now I've found another one. Well, again, it helps when you come from those disciplines, with cultural studies, media and communication studies. Um, you know, so I've never, I've never strayed very far yeah. from the disciplines I care about. And, yeah. and, 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 you, you know, and you remained active in research and teaching. I've, I've, it, it has been, of course, difficult to do that, but I've nonetheless uh, uh, kept up with particular projects I've seen as important. Yeah. Um, also collaborating with colleagues on, yeah. on particular projects. Uh, so I never strayed very far from the research or the disciplines. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, you know, quite frankly, to, uh, to be able to develop capacity, research capacity, yeah. and also teaching capacity amongst colleagues is quite a rewarding, rewarding yeah. uh, thing yeah. I found. Yeah. Yeah. And when I first met you, the work you were doing was very strongly related to some local Aboriginal protests and the media coverage of them particular, very vitriolic, talkback radio. And I wondered if you might, even though this is going back, really is going back over 20 years, explain some of that for listeners and about the things that you found and the work you did, because that's remained an important theme in much of your has, has research. That, that work um, became interested in, 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 the, in, the, in the, the problem of, of uh, in Western Australia and across Australia, populist media, that is soft right uh, commercial populist media and the way in which it exploited um, historical community attitudes about indigenous people, particularly the quite negative uh, colonial uh, uh, residues, yeah. um, which in Western Australia 20, 30 years ago were, were palpably yeah. um, active. And um, my interest, I, I suppose, began as a uh, as a, an employee of the Department of Aboriginal Affairs in the 1980s. I was a public servant uh, for 10 or 11 years in Indigenous Affairs, both in Northern Territory and in Western Australia, the Commonwealth uh, Department of Aboriginal Affairs and ATSIC, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission. I uh, also worked for the Royal Commission to Aboriginal Deaths in Custody um, on the underlying issues um, beneath uh, why so many Indigenous people were dying in state custody, that is in prisons and in police lockups. And just to interrupt for a moment, I don't know what the numbers are like now, Steve, but my recollection is that in those days, Aboriginal men in particular were something like 40% of the prison population and 2% of the overall population. Yeah, those, those figures have not gone down. In fact, they've, they've, in many ways, they've, they've continued to trend um, worse. Um, they're still among the most imprisoned um, people in the world as a people. And, of course, that also meant that they were dying in greater numbers in jail. Uh, and in lockups. Yeah. Um, and part of my role with the Royal Commission back in 1990 was to look at the role the media played in creating social community attitudes, um, which in, 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 in various ways um, contributed to the high uh, yeah. number of Indigenous people in the criminal justice system. Right. Right. And so that went right from 
the way indigenous people themselves felt about the way they were talked about, represented, treated in the streets, treated by governments, treated in schools, treated in missions, by churches, um, uh, right through to the way in which uh, uh, political uh, policy, political party policy, yeah. was to a large extent being shaped by um, very powerful media players who had interests in, um, various interests in, suppressing or uh, minimizing the, the growth of indigenous rights and of course many talking about the mining industry yeah. and, and conservative political parties um, and they those interests uh, largely um, interests in, in making sure that aboriginal land rights in particular rights to land traditional lands were kept as small and minimal as possible well, yeah. in order that um, uh, mineral exploration resource exploitation could proceed Unfettered, yeah. as unfettered as possible. My recollection was that in Australia, Victoria had the most progressive legislation because it had the fewest possible conflicts of interest right. when it came to minerals exploitation and Aboriginal land rights. And Western Australia perhaps had the most. And um, I initially became interested in the 1984-85 by a, a mining industry campaign um, to convince the public that Aboriginal land rights were going to lead to um, your backyard being appropriated. Yeah. In fact, literally, uh, advertising material which, which directly <laughs> referenced people's backyards being taken. Uh, I remember it actually. Backyards. Yeah. You probably remember that. Yeah, I do. That's why I initially became interested because so powerful was that came and so decisive yep. was it in shutting down federal legislation yep. um, around a national Aboriginal land rights bill and in containing again um, limiting um, state uh, state legislation which would recognise Indigenous rights. Right. Uh, since that since that period, of course, the National Native Title Act has occurred back in the early 1990s. To some extent, that issue has been superseded. But at the time, um, uh, television advertising, press advertising, coupled with, again, populist talkback radio programs, yep. and particular widely read conservative columnists, um, uh, un unquestionably was able to drive public opinion. Right. Um, from the undecided portion of the problem in particular, yeah. towards the negative, anti-land rights positions, fearful positions. Yeah. Um, that's when I initially became interested. And so having area. worked in this Royal Commission, and for those who don't know, Royal Commissions are appointed by the monarchy, and they are normally run by, I think always run by judges at their Royal Commissions, and they are the great and the good being appointed to give the government an independent view on an important topic, but often with subpoena powers effectively to require testimony. Yes. Yes, they did. And they examined 99 cases of deaths in custody and also um, an, a very prominent national Aboriginal, Patrick Dodson, who mm. I worked for, was, was the commissioner for underlying issues. So his role is to look at not so much the, the forensic and judicial um, aspects uh, of deaths in custody, but what was underlying that. What are the, what are the yep. broad range of social issues that contributed to first Indigenous people ending up in jail in such yep. astronomical numbers? And then also dying in such so, large numbers. And this is a point where you return to academia, right after the Royal Commission, having done, I think I'm right in saying, your undergrad degree at Murdoch University. That's right. When you only recently, fairly recently, arrived from North America. About a year, about a year after I arrived from, yeah. uh, actually, was in Spain at that point in time. Oh, were you? I'm originally okay. from Canada. My but, family yeah. had moved to Spain for three years. Then. Got the separate movie to Australia in late '74. Right. I came with them and uh, started Murdoch as one of the first intake, first undergraduates right. in 1975. And did communication studies, which I think was the first communication studies major to do in Australia in at Australia. that time. And was fortunate enough by by 1976 to have uh, people teaching me, such as uh, Bob Hodge, yeah. uh, John Fro, for example. Yeah. And, and and quite formative. The um, the first uh, unit, Introduction to Semiotics, uh, offered in Australia, as it was wow. called then. So. Let us say you were also taught by Kim Beasley, yes. who's probably Kim, less of a positive influence Kim intellectually, Beasley, I imagine. Kim Beasley was a tutor. Who, who was tutor a, an academic in those days and went on to become, amongst opposition. other things, opposition leader in federal politics for the Labour Party. He was also taught by the state, one of the one-time state premier, Jeff Gallup. Jeff Gallup, also a Labour Party apparatchik. So, in any event, you come back to academia about 15 years later, armed with a disposition, an interest, an experience, a personal heritage, and a political and scholarly commitment to truth and justice for Aboriginal people, yeah. and with a topic, in a sense, ready-made. Yes. 
and, and a body of a body of primary research already done. And that yeah. was for the Royal Commission, and also some some long years in ATSIC uh, and the Department of Aboriginal Affairs, in which uh, as as uh, in the public public affairs department section of that. Oh, were well, you? So looking at media, I was at able to monitor media. media. I was able to liaise with yeah. media. Yeah. I, you know, had uh, various roles, writing the writing the ministerial press releases, speeches. Right but also organizing press conferences and organizing coverage around indigenous issues, around, yeah. around right. government policy in relation right. to indigenous people. But also, very fortunately, at that particular time, yeah. the federal government and, and key Aboriginal rights organizations worked yeah. extremely closely together. Um, and I'm talking about the National Aboriginal Conference, um, uh, which um, headed by Rob Riley, yeah. a uh, local uh, Aboriginal leader of national report. Um, a various, very large self-determining self-managed Aboriginal organizations devoted to advancing Aboriginal rights. Yeah. At that particular point in time, the federal Labour government uh, in the uh, mid to latter half of the uh, of the 1980s and those organizations had the closest of, of collaboration, uh, yeah. funding-wise, of course, yeah. but also in a sense that uh, it would often be the case that we'd find on ministerial trips and visits to the bush uh, and to the cities, um, traveling together very yeah. much working as, very, a, as a kind of team. Well, and just a bit of history for people, it's worth knowing that historically the Labour Party was founded in racism, founded on racism, uh, more than any other political party in Australia of substance, but because of the broadening of its charter and the change in the Labour movement in Australia, it became a significant champion of land rights by contrast with those forces more aligned with uh, capital investment in the mining industries, and they were fractions within the Labour Party that were, may still be, I don't know, very progressive in terms of Aboriginal interests, and there was a mutual imbrication of the civil society aspects of Aboriginalism and the governmental apparatus, yes. I think it's fair to say, in those days. And, and the high water mark, I think, from, from about 1984 through to about... Uh, about 1990, 1991, with the formation of ATSIC, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission, was a very well-funded national um, Aboriginal organization with elected representatives throughout the country, yeah. which had real um, legislative power, uh, authority to uh, self-determine yeah. policy locally, in local yeah. areas, to involve governments, state, federal, and local, in Aboriginal development projects, uh, rights projects, um, commanded a, a very large budget at that time, was also responsible initially for the whole Aboriginal health budget at that time, which is quite considerable. Um, I consider that the high, the high watermark, if you like, the government's understanding of what Aboriginal self-determination meant, right. which, right. Was to, which, was, which was to, to set up governmental organisations, sizable government organisations, organizations, to replace the old Native Welfare Department, yeah. Department of Aboriginal Affairs, as it became. And of course, that evolved into ATSIC, which uh, I helped to set up in Western Australia. And roles. Steve, my recollection is that the first academic paper slash activist paper you published, correct me if I'm wrong, was about a radio station here, an AM populist talk show station of the kind you've alluded to, 6PR, with its then top talk show host, Howard Sattler, and his coverage of, if you can call it coverage of, a very particular Aboriginal heritage Action. Have I got that right in my memory? Uh, yes, by and large. It was actually probably the second major paper I did. I did, I did okay. a study, published a study in 1990 on press campaign um, around um, uh, youth, youth, uh, Aboriginal youth crime. It's a, 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 a very virulent moral panic around suburban crime involving Indigenous youth, uh, which developed uh, in, in Bayswater and Maylands, two suburbs, uh, inner city suburbs. Um, which, um, uh, again, the Howard Sattler program that you just mentioned fed into, um, but the initial study was in the press, and that moved on very quickly to a study of the Sattler program. The highest rating morning talkback radio program in Western Australia, highly influential, um, a program in which if you were a politician, you, you pretty much needed to be on, on the program yep. as often as possible, communicating to 6PR's audience, which was by and large understood to be, again, Ordinary people, i.e., non-elites, non um, as you're probably aware, Toby, in, 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 in Australia, uh, social elites, people such as ourselves, educated you know, urban liberals, are understood to, to watch the ABC or listen to the ABC, sorry, Broadcasting Corporation. The Sattler file and various. Um, was, that was the name of the program. 
the yes. Salafar is the name of this program, um, they very much fashioned themselves against that. Yeah. In other words, they would often they would often reference the Australian Broadcasting Corporation and its latte sipping, uh, you know, intellectuals. Um, which, which and, by the way, is why in a minute I'm going to get Steve to leave the coffee shop and go to the bar so we can avoid all these latte sipping intellectuals. <laughs> and, and so, so you had that quite conscious um, yeah. uh, profile, yeah. self-profiling by. Uh, it wasn't only the Salafar. A number across the country did the same thing. Uh, John Laws. And, Sydney and also Alan Jones, of course, famously, uh, in New South Wales. Um, programmers who consciously set out to define their audience yeah. as those who weren't ABC. Yeah, audiences. yeah. And that you'd find uh, the representation of ordinary people, the ordinary people's interests, right. on the program. And, and of course, issues like um, Indigenous people's right to land is going to threaten your backyard. So, it was tailor-made, if you like. Ordinary people meant ethnically unmarked Australian citizens who were suburban or rural rather than inner city and did not have tertiary qualifications, yep. I would say. That's the it, kind of demographic that's being yes. incarnated, even yes. if it's not the empirical yes. reality. And, and I'm glad you said ethically unmarked, because in yeah. fact, one of the problems of the of, of, of scholarly studies of, of this particular phenomenon at the time is it was assumed that these were white audiences you know, only. These were white Australian audiences yeah. who had come under pressure because of... Uh, the federal policy of, uh, of multiculturalism, for example, right. and just right. increasing globalization yeah. and the population of Australia by various non-white diasporas right. and, and, and immigrations. And uh, that was the theory, but when you actually listened to programs like the Satellite you discovered that many of the people ringing in and engaging with the idea that we're being threatened by Aboriginal rights or being threatened by Aboriginal activities in some way were in fact not, uh, and not certainly not exclusively. Um, Anglo-Celtic white yeah. white Australians, uh, they they, they uh, often often again uh, Italian migrants, yeah. Slav migrants. Um, you found Asian people um, in various countries. So one of the, one of the one of the ways in which the appeal of such programs became much broader yeah. and able to defend themselves against charges, misguided yeah. charges that they were they were rallying white people yeah. right only, uh, were to be able to point to the diverse demographic. Their, of their of their uh, listenership, um, and so I think, in a sense, it also made it it also made it more urgent because you appear, the appearance of a multicultural, multinational coalition of of, of the angry bigots and, and the frightened against indigenous people. Yeah, right, right, so, absolutely. And yeah. it's also a sign of the way in which multiculturalism in Australia was not constructed out of and with the participation of Aboriginal interests. It was, it was constructed in terms of a uh, proletarian immigrant yeah. caste that had to be managed in some way. Much as you, the same story with multiculturalism in Canada in a lot of ways and multiculturalism less officially in the United States. Yeah. Canadian multiculturalism was of course the model yes. for Australians. So I think you know that is a big issue in the whole history of Australian multiculturalism that for many Aboriginal folks, at least when it started, and for the first, say, 10 years, when I was somewhat familiar with it, it was not seen as a friend. No. Absolutely. One of the... One of the um, uh, because of this, it, it, the, if you like, um, the discourse around equal, equality, equality of, of cultures, equality of, of, uh, of the various diasporas and immigrations to, migrations to Australia, these were things that were con consciously organized on, on these programs, on these radio programs, um, so that indigenous rights could only be understood as a violation of that idea of some kind of ethnic equality. Yeah. In other words, um, you don't see you know, claims like, uh, either from the broadcaster himself or themselves or their listeners, you don't see the Italians or the you know, Yugoslav Australians or the Portuguese Australians or the Chinese Australians demanding land rights, do you? So, in other words, there was no different difference in relation to Indigenous people allowed on these programs. No, and also, so simply, uh, simply Australians of a particular ethnic background right. who had difficulties, particular social problems, which we might sympathise with, but that did not entail the recognition of any any different form of rights, particular rights, yeah. national rights, peoplehood rights, sovereign rights, for example. Those were all uh, inventions, political inventions of the urban left and also of a, of, a left, of a left internationally, the idea of rights. Now, this is particularly curious, of course, because um, sovereign rights are respected by, generally, it's, it's not a radical idea, of course. 
it's not a left idea, even in fact. It's actually fact it's central <laughs> it's to the discourse of the satophile and yes. all these entities. And so, where you, where where you would have, um, uh, you know, unquestionable, unquestionable support for sovereign rights overseas, and it's to be understood as, as a matter of common sense, a matter of fact. When 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 it, uh, in terms of its applicability to Australian Indigenous people, mm. suddenly that became a radical, dangerous idea. You know. So it was far more, the example I give, it was far, far easier for many Australians uh, and listeners of these programs to accept that we would actually send troops to East Timor to defend the self-determination of the Timorese against a very big, large and powerful neighbour, the Indonesian government. Um, in other words, for John Howard, uh, who, had who was the Australian Prime Minister from uh, 1996 to 2007, leader of a Liberal National Party reactionary coalition, and who had made it very clear that any any um, any talk of, uh, of Aboriginal sovereignty um, would uh, and self determination would constitute dividing Australia. That would be dividing mm. Australia. That's mm. what the UN wanted to do. For instance, he often said that the United Nations wants to divide Australia, did he? That's using Indigenous people uh -huh. and, and their alleged um, sovereign rights. So, so self-determination and sovereignty was something which could be applied for people to, you know, 200 kilometers offshore of Darwin in Timor, with Australian, backed by Australian troops, remember. And, and of course, um, a highly celebrated move, um, Australia helping a, a small impoverished neighbor at the time, at least that was the, that, that was the narrative, um, while at the same time, across the straits, in, in the Northern Territory, for example, um, literally, you know, an hour or so's plane flight, um, any idea of indigenous sovereignty or sovereign rights or self-determination existing for these particular people was to be condemned. And as, by the way, divisive. Australia very interested, of course, in securing offshore petroleum rights as a question of national as sovereignty it, in precisely this area. As has been revealed a number of times now. <laughs> and, and fully. Now, the, the particular interest I want to drag you across that street. Can we do that? Yeah. And I want us to keep talking as we go. Sure, we do. Now, yes, no, take those cookies. Take those cookies, young man. So, Steve, there you are. I mean, Sattler is the second paper, but I guess it's the one that I knew. Perhaps I arrived in Perth after you'd done the first one. What did you find when you did, I think, in part, content analysis, in part, textual analysis? Should we go indoors, get away from the noise a bit? of the Sattler farm, because I think you did both. You did a sort of systematic social science collection, sure. but you also did in-depth, more hermeneutic study. Hello, very well, we're just here for a, hello, nice to see you again. We're gonna sit down, have a little drink, and record our little thing if we can. Um, I'd like a glass of your temperature. Yeah. 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 Yes, thank you very much. One of the um, so yes, you did a combination. Yeah, yes. we did a com I think you did a combination sure. of these methods. We did. Well, what was interesting interesting about that? We, it, was, it was a combination of textual analysis of the pro of the of the program itself, the term taking on the program, right? Between and the the the, uh, the way in which. The program and his and his product, the program host or talkback presenter and his production staff were able to construct what you hear on it um, seamlessly as if it was spontaneous. And that was that was I think at that particular time not a lot of work had been done on that. And the eventual publication of the work um, was was um, I, su I suppose people were, were very surprised and alarmed. To find out the tricks, the tricks of the trade, one particular critic called it. The tricks um, of the trade. Yeah, this particular work exposed the tricks of the trade in, in, in Talkback Radio. Now, what, um, what, what does that mean? One of the one of the people I was fortunate enough to work with is our mutual colleague Alec McCall yeah. at Murdoch. And I sat down with Alec and I said, "Listen to this exchange." And I had it on. You know, we had it on, on you know, cassette tape in those days. People, um, cassette tape, a fascinating technology. <laughs> Look it up on your search engine of choice under the images and you'll see what we're talking about. And, I said, and Alec had done a bit of radio. Actually done more radio than I had in terms of production. I'd only done a couple of programs in the past. Um, Thank you, sir. And so, what, we listened to some turn-taking. And, and Alec said, um, for a start, nothing, nothing that is heard 
nothing that is heard on the program. There's nothing on the program that is heard that the presenter does not want you to hear. Okay, start from that principle. What do you mean? Well, to start, there's two technologies, at least two technologies occurring here. One is the seven-second delay, or dump button, whereby the presenter can dump, literally from the air, before you as a listener will hear it, anything they don't want you to hear. Now, that may be for legal reasons. You may be defaming somebody, consciously or inadvertently. You may be being obscene and breaching you know, some form of decency provision. Um, you may be subjudice various ways in relation to legal cases. And the presenter or his producer has seven seconds to hit the dump button. That's seven. In other words, what you hear is seven seconds delayed on a radio program on the actual speech. Um, what that what that means is the presenter has ultimate editorial control, and although the, the program producer, you don't hear anything they don't want you to hear. Right. They're authorizing everything you hear. And what's important about that is this is contrary to the claims of such presenters who say that you only hear what people say on the program. I don't, you know, I, I allow people to say what they want to say on the program. Um, um, you know, you heard it on my program. I didn't say it. My guests said it or some of the callers said it. Um, this is the most, um, if you like, um, unmediated media possible. You know, this is this is direct communication, and it has a demotic populist warrant. It yes. has the justification not only of being apparently unedited and spontaneous, but of being what real people have to say. Exactly, and that and that. So it all worked. It worked as a concept extremely well. Still does that. What you hear, ordinary people, for the for the first time, expressing their concerns freely unmediated by again um, too many journalists of course even though the presenters of these programs were invariably journalists themselves and the producers in the background which would which would monitor polls stack them up on a, on a, on a monitor and a computer screen so they could uh, so they could see who was calling and the gist of what they wanted to talk about so that was already known before they got onto air when you hear the presenter say we've got Al from Bayswater uh, he already knows what Al wants to say He's likely to already know who Al is, because Al may have called in a number of times in the past six months. He may also be what we call a ringback, where behind the scenes, the, 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 the talkback was a show host or his producers have actually called up Al and said, why don't you ring in this morning? You like this topic, you'd like to hear what you've got to say. You know, so you get that kind of... Right. It's, I suppose it's manipulation, but I mean, again, I don't want to call that sinister. Only insofar as that what's presented to the public is these things are occurring spontaneously. Right, right. Whereas in fact they're very mediated. Now, Steve, you mentioned responses to this. What did Howard Sattler, Six PR, and the bourgeois media more generally make of your report, your study? The, the Six PR, well, Six Six PR radio station reacted with rage. Um, and uh, the, the the owner of the station, which was the which was the TAB, the, bet, the state-controlled betting agency, owned 6PR, which meant that 6PR was a government-owned station because the betting agency was owned by the, the government, the state government at the time, which was a Labour state government. And part of my research um, pointed out government-subsidised racism occurring on this program in relation to the positions taken against Indigenous people, the insulting. You know, jokes, uh, the, the, the kind of stereotypes and tropes of Aboriginality that were being circulated and reinforced in the program right. um, that you could say this amounted to, and I said it clearly, government subsidized racism. The government had a direct responsibility here. Although I'm not uh, an advocate of extreme censorship of media, at the same time, um, where was the government, in a sense, encouraging a best practice policy in a station which was under its control at that time? Particularly a government that otherwise had policies which you'd like to say were favorable to Indigenous people. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, the reaction to the station was to uh, threaten to sue. Um, the uh, Murdoch University Vice Chancellor, to his credit at the time, said, um, look at the, 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 the published work and said it's fair comment to be stand by 100%, which is great. And that's what I think a good university vice chancellor should be doing. Um, and that, uh, that kind of, I think, chilled uh, their, their legal ambitions against our work. Um, and I still stand by today. It was a it was fair comment, um, fully legal. I legal my work before it goes out because of that. If you want to say some sharp things, you really ought to have your work legal by a publication lawyer. 
Um, Get the repressive state apparatus <laughs> on your <laughs> side. Micklin, um, <laughs> Lord number one. One of the other technologies that was interesting that Alec helped me with was understanding the voice channel override, which was that the the way the technology is set up is that the uh, rather than have to flick switches to to switch over to switch his voice in and out in, a, in an exchange on air, the presenter only has to breathe loudly, and his his voice channel, his microphone overrides all others. In other words, it's a kind of like a magic wand there. It will cut everybody out. Now, what, what these uh, talkback presenters became very, very skilled at, were able to intervene or interject and cut into whatever anybody else is saying on the program, mid-sentence, at the yeah. end of sentences, right. before they right. can speak again, before they can finish points, sometimes to do it during natural breathing pauses, such that you wouldn't know that the person is still, in fact, talking underneath them. Trying to get, try to finish a point. What you hear is the presenter at that point. And so the research shows several instances where people who are putting cases for, for example, indigenous cultural rights or land rights, yeah. sacred sites, were being cut in, a pattern of, of, of interjection was occurring um, at key moments, which made their arguments seem, of course, um, disjointed, um, somewhat chaotic, often uh, unfinished. Lacking in confidence, and this this was this was effective. That technology, yeah, uh, of the technology, you know, in a sense, the the dominance of the presenter. Yeah, and I'm not saying that presenters shouldn't have such dominance, but it's the way they use them. Right, right. Can I ask Steve where people can find this work? Because it's striking research that I've pointed to, to many, many times in the last two decades. It's available online, freely online, um, at Murdoch University. Um, if you, if people were to simply type into Google search engine, gambling on the first race, gambling on the first, first race, racism colon racism and talkback radio, uh, they will quickly find the Murdoch University site, which is the old site from the Centre for Culture, uh, Research and Culture and Communication, that I worked at at the time, right, uh, when producing this work, um, and they'll find it there and they can Great. read it freely as well. Now. Steve, we're already halfway through. We haven't even got to the main body of your scholarly output. I'm sorry. It's just that I guess I focused so much on something that I thought was so important that I knew well. Tell us about the many other projects you've been involved in since, if you could. What I've, what I've done recently, in fact, uh, in February, put a, uh, a new title out. Oh, wonderful. Um, I've got it in my hands. A Boy's, boys Short, Short Life. Life. The story of Warren Braden, Louis Johnson. And it's actually... The culminate well, it's the it's the it's the fruition of work that was begun back in that time when we were talking about. In fact, I referenced this particular case of this young man who was murdered, murdered in Perth, um, in in 1992, during a particularly. Well, I remember this now. particularly it's a magnificent photograph on the front cover. Um, now that particular work was was uh, co-written with my colleague Anna Habeck, who's one of the uh, country's foremost ethnographers and writers on indigenous policy. Remarkable person. Yeah. Um, that story originally appeared partially in my work on Talkback because what was interesting about this case was the connection between the way in which this murder was treated, the murder of a young Aboriginal man in Perth in 1992, in the middle of a full-blown panic about Aboriginal, alleged Aboriginal crime. In other words, front page stories, page two, page three, standing throughout the tabloids, on talkback radio every morning, um, uh, chronicling car thefts, break-in enters, assaults, all these sorts of things. In many cases, running the mill stuff that happened in any city of first size, you know, one and a half million people. Uh, but of course, as we know from that great work done by Stuart Hall et al., Many years ago, on policing the crisis, mugging that, is that, black. That's right. It's black, and also there doesn't have to be an actual crime wave for there to be a textual crime wave, yeah, um, or discursive crime wave. And so, my work at the time was very much showing how, again, some of that with Alec, Alec McCall again, showing the crime statistics, the actual arrest rates um, and incarceration rates did not match the public presentation representation of an out of control Aboriginal youth crime wave time. So there was no actual factual basis to it, if you like. But nonetheless, for various reasons, um, uh, th this, this occurred, it, it caused, it led to the state labor government introducing the most severe juvenile crime laws in the country. 
um, very much a, a three strikes and you're out policy where which removed the discretion of children's court magistrates from setting the sentence they saw fit in the paramount interests of the child, because remember we're talking about people who are under 18 here, uh, instead man made mandatory prison sentences uh, or detention sentences for certain types of, of behaviour. And I should say the three strikes and route legislation, which was introduced around this time in the United States, meant that if people were convicted of three crimes in a row, well, not in a row, but over their lifetimes, then there were some mandatory lifetime sentences yes. given, in many cases for people who had no history, convicted or otherwise, of violence in their lives. Yes, yeah. I mean, these, these were, again, um, contravened treaties on the rights of the, of the child, covenants on the rights of the child that Australia was a signatory to, UN treaties. Um, and uh, now, again, very much, and I think anybody you speak to in the Labour Party at the time, including the Premier at the time, Carmen Lawrence, uh, probably would express a sense of despair. They're being overwhelmed by massive public opinion and feeling, I'm not excusing their behaviour here, but there was no question that the, the media pressure created by people, again, like the, the, the Howard Sattler's programme, yeah. the West Australian newspaper and others, um, Another um, put enormous pressure on governments to introduce, throw away, basically lock them up, throw away the key was yeah. the expression yeah. used, and enormous pressure on children's court judges magistrates for stiffer handling, yeah. stiffer penalties. Yeah. Um, now, this young man... By the way, I'm sorry, I don't care what fucking pressure these bastards were under. I'm sorry. Carmen Lawrence had a PhD. She'd been an academic. She knew perfectly well how to see through the difference between the abuse of statistics by the media and the reality, even at the level of alleged criminality, that was underneath them. And that's... I accept politicians don't have complete autonomy by any means, in the same way you and I have much more autonomy. This was an, out, an outrage of cataclysmic racial proportions. Yes, it was. Right? And all the while, again, I would remind people, as I said earlier, much of it emanating from a radio station which was owned by a, a state <laughs> government authority. Of which she was the, the premier of the state. Right, state right, right. So, so, again, I agree with you, no excuses, yeah. no, and, and no sympathy. Now, the point about uh, 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 Louis Johnson, yeah. Louis Johnson, 19 years old, was an Aboriginal man who was murdered in the streets of Perth, uh, North Beach, a suburb, wealthy suburb of Perth, on his 19th birthday, by a group of white youths. Now, my immediate reaction to that was to notice, why was this not on the front page? Why was this not an instance of the juvenile of youth our young way? people out of control? Surely this must absolutely this must fit, fit the must fit the objectives or the, the narratives of the things of the Sattler program to a T. You know, here's a vicious murder by a gang of youths of another youth. And what was the difference here? Louis Johnson was black, and the perpetrators were white. White on black violence. And it took it took a number of months before the rest of the media uh, uh, came to understand the significance of the case and the injustice that not only in, in the murder itself but also the injustice and the, the way it showed the racial selectivity and how news was produced. News and current affairs were produced in Western Australia. And um, so the original work on the murder and, its, and the way it was treated by particular media, I treated at that time. Then later on, Anna and I did a study of this young man's life, which, of course, told a much, much bigger story than even that. Uh, that he was one of the stolen generations of Aboriginal uh, children, taken uh, from his uh, family and mother in Alice Springs when he was a few months old. In the Northern Territory of Australia, so the centre of the country, a long, long, long way from Perth. I mean, literally, really, the breadth of Western Europe away. And he was uh, born into a Lurcha Aranta family, which are uh, uh, two very big cultural language groups in the Alice Springs area. He was adopted, put up for adoption by the Northern Territory government and adopted by a young British couple, come out, uh, um, Pauline and Bill Johnson, um, who moved to Perth. Who were loving and proud loving, loving parents. parents. Loving adopted parents and who believed, and Bill often talks about that, he talks about it in the book, uh, about how they were, they were elected, they were doing the best yeah. for young Louis. Yeah. Louis had been born Warren Braden, by the way, his, so his family name, Lurcha, parental family, or the Braden family. Um, he was born Warren Braden, and of course the Johnsons were not to know that. Uh, yeah. When they asked for his name, 
uh, they were told they called him Louis, which was uh, uh, a fiction, a fabrication. Fiction. So um, he became Louis Johnson and um, had, a, in spite of the love and care of his family throughout his upbringing, suffered um, persistent racial discrimination, prejudice, abuse, discouragement um, throughout his life in school, in the streets of Perth. And this is, Perth is a city at that time which was, as we say in the book, um, held out the promise of a better life for everybody. And uh, it liked to think of itself that way. It didn't yeah. like to think of itself as having a race problem, like British cities at the time, Brixton and all those places that exploded, or American cities. But nonetheless, as we show again uh, in this particular work, the statistics, Thank you very much. the statistics around Aboriginal poverty and disadvantage are extraordinary. Not only imprisonment, we talked about earlier, yeah. but in terms of land holding. Yeah. Um, right. You know, 33 square kilometers in the whole of the state. The state is is probably another size of Western Europe. So you can get two Texases into Western Australia. Also, at the time, around the time that Louis was brought to Perth, only 12 Noongar students. Noongar people are the, are the traditional owners of the southwestern state, the land on which Perth City is, is Noongar land. There were only 12 Noongar year that made it into 12, year 12, which is the last year of high school at that time, only 12. Um, so you can see education, the, the, the disparity in educational attainment at the time. Um, the same with uh, income. Um, there is some, again, of course, youth incarceration um, and, and involved in the criminal justice system. Um, uh, and on and on. Every social system you can name showed indigenous people yeah. massively disadvantaged. Um, and so this belied the fact that this is a city where anybody could make, make good of themselves. And of course, many migrants had, and the Johnsons, uh, Bill and Pauline, had made very good. They had their, done their very well, hadn't they? They um, were quite bourgey. And they were able to give uh, Louis very many material benefits. Yeah. And, and I, I suppose, um, and I have to give, you know, acknowledge Bill and Pauline's tremendous, since Louis' murder, their ceaseless work to make it, yep. to publicize. Yep, they were fantastic. Not only the, 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 the evil, the danger, the racism behind the murder, yep. but also the effect of the government policies of removal of Aboriginal children from, from mothers and families they considered to be neglectful right, over decades yeah. um, throughout last century, and the, the catastrophic impact this has yeah. had on Aboriginal people, families. Yeah. Um, they've been tireless campaigners to bring, you know, to, to make sure that Louis' story is understood. And so, A Boy's Short Life very much starts with, the, starts, well, in fact, doesn't start with, it starts prior to Louis' birth and looks at the history of colonialism in the Alice Springs area. The uh, containment, the shoving out and also containment of indigenous people as the town grew and the past various industries, pastoral industry in particular, grew. Um, their relegation to fringe camps, um, which uh, Louis' family uh, ended up in, and the uh, racial tensions and, and, and uh, flashpoints that occurred in yeah. Alice Springs throughout the 1970s, um, at the time when Louis was removed. Uh, and taken and um, I haven't read the book, but I was living in Perth when these things happened. And the courage of his parents, the power of their testimony, was extraordinary and of course endowed with greater meaning and given greater coverage because they were white. Yes. Yes. And, and they would have been the first to acknowledge that, I'm sure. They they yes, they were white and also they had done the thing which the government said they should be doing. That they were doing good right. by adopting by an adopt, And look child. what happened anyway. And they're saying, you know, look what happened anyway. We could so his 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 loving Aranta yeah. Uh, Lurichur family could not protect him. Could not protect him. And his loving uh, white I English family could, could not, not protect, protect him against overwhelming, no. yeah. um, uh, cruel and human social forces. The story of this killing is so like the Stephen Lawrence story in Britain around the same time. Mm. So awful. Now, what I don't know, Steve, is what happened to the killers. The killers, uh, the two main perpetrators, uh, one was a juvenile at the time, under 18, the other was 21 years old, were convicted of murder and, and uh, spent time in prison for murder. 
convicted and sentenced. Um, I understand they, they serve their sentences. I'm not, I'm not aware of where, where they are nowadays. Um, but they were convicted. There were other youths involved um, who did not receive any, any sentences, uh, weren't charged. That's a bit of a sore point also with Bill Johnson still, uh, who believes that they had more to do with the actual killing than, than it came out in the trial. Like. Um, it was uh, in the, the actual killing. They drove over him. They, they pulled his. He was uh, asleep on the side of the road, the verge of the road, a suburban road, and they stopped. They beat him up, pulled his legs out over the curb, and drove their car over him at high speed, which caused massive internal injuries, uh, and then drove off um, using, um, as came out in the trial, uh, racist. Terminology, referring to really the black bastard. I'm glad I got the black sword, language like that. Um, he was discovered by a passing cyclist seven hours, uh, several hours later, early, early hours of the morning, who could see that he was obviously ill and called an ambulance. St. John's Ambulance Service came, tended, and concluded that Louis had been sniffing petrol. Which in a certain horrific sense, he had been, in the sense of having a car drive over you. Well, in a, in a, in a macabre sense, I say yes. it not in a yes. jokey way. No, but in fact, he, 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 yes, he, he had uh, the, 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 the uh, petrol sniffing, which is which is a uh, terrible addiction yeah. and, and uh, problem, particularly in remote areas of Australia and remote outback areas of Australia is also a kind of easy way of defining um, and, and, and uh, determining Aboriginal behaviour or predicaments. They're yeah, so, known as volatile substance abuse. Yeah. I actually worked as a research officer on the Senate Select Committee into that topic in the 80s. Yeah. And, and Grotesque. It is. And of course, in the coroner's report, report pointed out that Louis had not been sniffing petrol. Mm. There was no reason to believe otherwise. Um, they, they didn't do a proper examination of him, as they should have done. Yep. So in other words, the discrimination, not only the racist, you know, the, the mortal injuries he, yeah. Did, yeah. He, he sustained, but even the treatment by the ambulance drivers, right. like professionals, you know, yeah. who, who really should have carried out a full ex proper examination and taken him to hospital. Instead, they took him home. Um, and told his sister, his uh, Bill and Pauline were out on a, on a business trip uh, earlier that morning, that he was intoxicated and should sleep it off in bed. And by the time Bill and Pauline got home, um, they found Louis in bed and obviously very ill. And they could see he was very ill. This wasn't, you know, uh, this was serious. And they called a second ambulance, and of course he died on the section. Second ambulance. So, um, one of the officers of the bill, bill, bill uh, sued the St. John Ambulance and then settled with them on a game very typical of Bill's approach to this. He didn't want anything more from them but the fact that they would agree to let him fund a training program to screen people for racist beliefs so they could become ambulance attendants. Extraordinary. So he, he then spent his effort and money and time in order to, in order to improve the service. Uh, which is which is tremendous. I mean, again, it was Bill's approach to things, um, uh, which they did. Um, then uh, it didn't end there. There was uh, further posthumous discrimination when they took his body back to Alice Springs. They had been with Louis to Alice Springs two or three years before because Louis was very, very concerned to find his his birth family. Yeah. Um, the Northern Territory authorities adhering rigidly to what they claimed was policy at the time. We don't give out the, the identities. We protect the identities of those of the birth parents and families. Without acknowledging that this isn't about voluntary adoption, this is about this is about seizure. And they left, Louis and the Johnsons had to leave Alice Springs empty-handed without knowing. Literally, as subsequently turned out, they, were probably, they had been within a few hundred meters of his family's camp. Not to know that. When they took his, uh, his body back to Alice Springs, yeah. um, went and saw the state government agency responsible again for um, the, the, the legacy of, of adoptions, yeah. and said, if you don't give us their names, we've got him in a coffin, if you don't, if you don't give us his family's name, and I don't know where about the whole press conference of it, of his dead body. And they did within a very short space of time came up with Louis, uh, the Braden family. And his mother Donna was still alive. And, uh, of course, photographs in the book will show uh, at the funeral um, his very large literature around the family.
who all that time, of course, had no idea where Louis was. It was 19 years. So, I suppose the, the story is contains so many aspects of the, of, the, of some extent, the collective experience of Indigenous people in Australia. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, on very, very many different levels, from racist violence to the violence of forced adoptions uh, and child removal. And uh, everyday racism in the streets, um, and the, and the, the incredibly destructive impact that has on young persons' sense of themselves. Did the white bourgeois media and the Sattler file on Six PR in particular pay heed here in Perth? When uh, at the time um, when I produced Gambling on the First Race, um, eventually after probably about six months. The management of the Sattler file, and I understand the producer had changed, the managing director had changed at that stage, came to see me at Murdoch University and wanted to acknowledge that they, 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 had, they, they needed to improve things and the way it was put that they needed to improve their relationship with Indigenous people. And um, had read my report, of course, they had read it at the time, they had read my publication in the first place. Um, so I, again, uh, I, you know, I didn't think this was, this was, as far as I was concerned, if, if the work did that and there was, there was some movement in the station, uh, I was happy. That's a good outcome. And so, um, however, um, it's subsequent record in, in, in the way it treated Indigenous people, both on that program and some other, pro other programs, did not substantially improve. Um, and... Uh, the Sattler file was continuing to take particular positions, again, whipping up populist anger, reaction, fear towards Indigenous rights right up to last year. And now, that, was this, that was another publication. Well, we've got about 10 minutes left. I want to get onto that. I think I'm right in saying that Sattler has been removed from the station for racism of some kind. But is that right? But not against Aboriginal people. He was, he was, Sattler's no longer at the station, he's, he's, he, he was uh, he retired on illness grounds. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Sometime ago, okay. last, yeah. last year, I think it was early last year, if I'm not mistaken. So he's no longer broadcasting. Um, at least he wasn't the last time, but he pretty yeah. much known to retire. He was convicted by the Human Rights and Equal Opportunity Commission uh, in 2000 for having breached the Racial Discrimination Act. I was an expert witness to that, in that case. Um, he allowed on his program a uh, comment about an Aboriginal uh, religious or spiritual figure called the Woggle. The Woggle is W-A-G-Y-L? G-Y-L, various ways of spelling it, or G-A-L, various ways The Woggle is the Noongar word for rainbow serpent. And the rainbow serpent is a quite widely... Um, um, Quite widely understood, indigenous. Some people call it Dreamtime, um, but it's a, it's a it's a, uh, a spiritual, religious, cultural figure of huge significance. It's a creation being, you know. It's yeah, responsible right, for right, creating right. landforms such as the Swan River, right, um, for ourselves. So the he allowed, he permitted a couple of taxi drivers on his program. And taxi drivers in Perth, if you want to hear, I mean, I, I shouldn't say this about old taxi drivers, some of them are very hard-working, ordinary people, but uh, there was at least a time in Perth whereby you would not want to mention the topic of Indigenous rights or Indigenous people in front of certain taxi drivers. You could get a barrage of quite unpleasant and ranging from hardcore racist rants to, to just plain you know, run-of-the-mill bigotry. Which would, be, which would spoil your ride to the airport, to say the least. And um, Satnafar had a, had, a, had a duo on regularly who would comment on such things as indigenous people defending cultural ground, particularly around the old Swan Brewery. The old, it's an old uh, beer brewery, an historic site next to the city of Perth, which also happens to be on a highly significant Noongar cultural site associated with the Woggle. And these two particular taxi drivers talked about hitting it over the head with a shovel, that will make it go away, these sorts of things. Um, now, as we know from, as we mentioned earlier, there's nothing on that program that you hear that the host doesn't want you to hear. 
and that could he have been laughs, He laughs about this without saying, right on, buddy. He says things like, well, you shouldn't talk like that. But, but laughing. The, the other thing is that one of the... One of the so the, a, a group of Nuna elders took him to the Human Rights Commission for, for um, uh, basically attempt to bring Aboriginal people into, into contempt yeah. um, as a people. Yeah. And that's quite important because it needs to be the, the criteria for breaching the act. Yeah. Needs, needs, the, 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 the comments need to be generalizable. So yeah. In other words, not just about this one, this person or that individual, right. but about Indigenous people in general. Mm -hmm. And that was proven to be the case. And as I argued, um, in one part of the exchange um, with the taxi drivers, Sattler says, um, they're protesting there now, i.e., you know, where were they 80, 100 years ago when the brewery went up? Now, of course, who's the they he's talking about? He could not, as his, his defense claimed, they were only talking about those particular individual pro Aboriginal protesters at the brewery site defending an Aboriginal site. In which case, guess what? They weren't born, they weren't dude. Born. They weren't born. So he could only have been referring to Aboriginal people, people in general. general. Right. Breach of the act. So they were fined fifty thousand dollars, and he now he did go off the air, but not necessarily because of that, because he had all already been up to uh, in, in hot water over what we call here. You'll remember Toby cash for comments. Right. These were these were very successful talkback radio hosts who were basically um, presenting covert advertising on behalf of sponsors of the program. In other words, in breach of the. Australian Broadcasting Act, which said you need to clearly identify the difference between editorial and, and advertising. Um, often um, stories would revolve around sponsors, which weren't, of course, there weren't stories, journalistic stories at all. They were, in fact, soft And these bastards were getting paid to do this. A bit like payola in the 50s in the US, but that was about spinning 45s. Discs, records, hits, yeah. and there was a lot of money involved, as you can imagine. Yeah. In this, it was, you know, and uh, of course, the Saturn file was not the only program named in the in the, in the Australian Broadcasting Authority's inquiries uh, into it, but also some big names in the Eastern States again, Alan yeah. Jones, sure. uh, uh, John Lewis. And so, in a sense, he did a he did a spell off the program after that. But it happened around the same time as the, uh, as the Human Rights Commission case. Um, so, I also like to think that it's it, 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 what is satisfying about that is some of the academic and scholarly work could contribute to a no, human rights case. And you did. Now, see, we've only got a couple of minutes left. Where can listeners get hold of The Boy's Short Life? The Boy's Short, Short Life is published by the University of Western Australia Publishing. Um, a very, very dynamic press that was a traditional university press in a good sense and now is that as well as being very agile electronically yes. under Terry Ann White. Yeah, they're the most prominent academic publisher in Western Australia at the moment. Um, and uh, so they can they can simply simply go online, they'll find yeah. the press, UWAP, right. um, they'll find that very quickly and they'll find the book. It's one of the one of the more recent releases of course, uh, yeah. released in February. Uh, and they can purchase that online Great. if they wish. There will be an ebook. Uh, coming oh, out at some terrific. point, and there's also um, an audio book being produced at the moment oh, for, for blind. Now, you've got some other publications. I'd love for you at least to, min no, to mention uh, some of them in the couple of minutes we've got left, so people can know how to okay. hunt down. This is a, another work which appeared last year, um, uh, setting up the Noongar Tent Embassy, a report on Perth Media. Um, I was one of the editors, along with uh, Niall Lucy and Robert Briggs, of this particular work, uh, to uh, one of my uh, PhD, uh, completed PhD students, this is some of this postdoctoral work, um, Tora Kerr, with another uh, uh, postdoc, Shafan Potts. Um, the indigenous community, Noongar indigenous community, approached me to do a study. Could yeah. it, did I have anybody who could do a study of the way in which the Perth news media was treating protests, Aboriginal protests right. and land use down at Harrison Island in Perth. Harrison Island is literally at the city's doorstep. Oh, uh, it's in the middle of the Swan River. How, how's it spelled? Harrison. Um, Whatever. E-R-A or... H. It's the, I think it's the Scandinavian, Scandinavian way. 
You'll find it H E I R O S S O N. Harris and I are Matagarup in Noongar. H E I R I S S O N. Right. Or Matagarup, as it's known to Noongar people, is an extremely important cultural ground. Uh, territory. It's an island in the middle of the Swan River. Um, literally at the gateway to Perth, the causeway, one of the principal uh, entries to the city from the airport, for example, goes over the causeway, over the, over the river, and you cross over Harrison, in the middle of Harrison Island, right. and you do that. Traditionally, a, 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 an important mineral piece of territory for ceremonies and all sorts of cultural uh-huh. use. Uh-huh. Um, the uh, 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 people decided to occupy the island in 2012, um, and to, to conduct certain practices out there, basic, basic language and cultural education, children, all sorts of things out there, in defiance of, of, of Perth City Council uh, edicts that they were illegally camping. Um, they were also protesting, used their camp as a protest against the state government's offer to the Noongar Nation, or to the Noongar people, of $1 billion dollars for the, in exchange for the extinguishments of, of large areas of Noongar land throughout the southwest of the state. They believed that this was not a proper political settlement, it didn't amount to a treaty, it, it amounted to basically cash for land, which they were, this particular group of people, were not prepared to accept. Um, that deal between the state and, and the, the Southwest La- Aboriginal Land Council um, was quite divisive. I mean, there were many Noongar people for it and many against it. Um, so it was quite a controversial issue. This group decided to exercise its rights um, to the island, traditional rights, which is a registered Aboriginal site, and which does give them the right to, to conduct traditional cultural activities on that site. Nonetheless, they were raided several times in 2012 by very heavy police, mounted police raids, um, multiple arrests, swept off the island, very high profile um, in the media. Uh, in fact, dominated the news for several days on end, two or three times in 2012. Um, and the media coverage of it was, uh, in general, extremely uh, problematic, as this particular piece of work um, analyzes. So my role on that was, again, as an editor with my colleagues, in helping uh, these two very good postdoc researchers who really did invest you know, their heart and soul into the project, spent many, many days down with them, with the Noongar people in situ, gained a lot of trust and a lot right. of friends amongst the Noongar community down there, which I'm, I'm very happy to see. Um, the Noongar people uh, were, were very, very happy with, with this piece of work. It's freely available online at our in-house publisher, Control Z Publishing, uh, in my school. That's like Control um, Z. Control Z Publishing. Which is actually um, what... Steve would say if he were being more indigenous to his own accent, so to speak. So we made that available free. It's book length now. um, And I think people will find it a fascinating study, blow-by-blow account, of where the media went wrong. And some of the same, if you like, actors that I've been talking about in previous work. 20 years earlier. 20 years earlier. So setting up the Nyonga Tent Embassy is the title. Control-Z or Control-Z, the publisher. And I know there are other works you've done, but you've got one more there in front of you. I was going to give you a copy of this, Toby. Um, I suppose a book which which I most enjoyed of anything I've written, writing with our mutual friend and colleague, Niall Lucy. Yeah. Uh, the War on Democracy, uh, Conservative Opinion in Australian Press. Right. That's a little bit older. That's 2006 we put that out. But that right. was very much our response to the conservative... Um, coalition at the time, federal coalition governments, culture wars. This is our, our answer to it, if you like, um, for your... Uh, oh, this is interesting. So you take... I'm just looking at this because I didn't know the book. Each chapter begins with the name of a prominent Australian journalist, at least in those days. I don't know whether they still are. And then it takes a theory or a topic or an issue that is twinned with that conservative intellectual's, public intellectual's name. Is that that's that's right. the approach? Exactly right. Wonderful. And so it is, it is uh, we had spent quite a bit of time in the early 2000s collecting reading, of course being quite steamed up about, uh, particularly attacks, attacks upon, um, upon um, liberal academics, liberal left academics, um, many of whom were, well, colleagues, sometimes ourselves, um, and 
um, these were people who were often, you know, the, 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 uh, the door between them and their, their media agencies and government was revolving. So they'd often be speechwriters for the Prime Minister and then be a stint back in their, their particular research institute or, or media outlet. Um, Coin-operated think tank. And, and, uh, and, all, and we call it the war on democracy because our particular take on democracy in this book is very much a Derridean one, Jack Derrida's idea about democracy to come, and that we, we need to understand um, uh, conservatism as an attack upon well, the conservatives. How could you possibly say that? We're far, more, far greater supporters than the left of an idea of democracy. Yeah, look at the Soviet Union versus Edmund Burke on the French Revolution. We comment on that. And, and so it, it is, and readers will need to, need to have a read on it. But basically, we, we decide let's take back that term democracy and own it again. And we can do things with that. And we can show how the Tories and the Conservatives, in each and every case, no matter what topic you take, news topic, yeah. or what particular um, social crisis or panic that they care to comment on, usually by blaming liberal society, liberal self reflexive society, is to blame for, you know, according to them, the things are going wrong. Right. What you need is more moral conservatism. Uh, more, more discipline and punish, if you like. Um, mm. And our response to that, which is very much uh, um, a, a kind of Australian version of what, what the US had, had experienced mm. much earlier, mm. an Australian version of that was to respond to the particular, directly particular protagonists. And this is the war on democracy, conservative opinion in the Australian press, and as also University with a boy short life, University of Western Australia this is University Press. Of well, Steve, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Uh, this has been, without a doubt, of the over 150 podcasts I've done, one of the most, I was going to say satisfying, that's not quite the right word, galling, as it were, shocking and yet powerful. I can't thank you enough for being so generous with your time. Toby, it's been a pleasure. Good to see you again. Great. Thank you, Steve.